I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Streets Ahead, a new podcast about livable neighborhoods, walking, cycling, and people-friendly streets. I'm Laura Laker. I'm Ned Bolton. And I'm Adam Tranter. And welcome to this, our second episode. This time we're talking about behaviour change, what are the levers for it, and are our existing habits just too strong? We're joined by Streets Ahead's very first guest, Dr Ian Walker, an environmental psychologist at the University of Bath and an ultracyclist to boot. Ian's perhaps most famous for donning a blonde wig and cycling in traffic to see if women got an easier time from drivers than men riding in a helmet. Welcome, Ian. Tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you for the invite. Yes, uh, I've worked at the University of Bath for about 20 years now. Uh, Less time for murder and all that. And I've been doing work on cycle safety and people's transport decisions for about 15 years or so. Sorry, Laura, um, I just can't let that go. The blonde wig cycling in traffic, with what was that all about, Ian? Uh, you, just, you just mentioned it and then didn't refer to it again. And uh, I think that our listeners owed an explanation. I did some work a few years ago where there'd been a debate online about people's people were coming up with all sorts of theories about what influenced the amount of space that drivers left when they overtook and some people were saying oh i reckon i get more space in this circumstance and other people were saying no 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 you get less space that way and so i decided to set out and actually do some proper measurement so uh, one of the guys from work uh, built a bike uh, which could measure how far each passing vehicle was. And I spent several weeks riding around trying to look at what made a difference to how much space people left. And it turned out a few things made a difference that, you know, you could predict driver's behaviour from 
various measures. Where you are on the road makes a difference. Um, whether I appeared male or female made a difference. So I put this long wig on to disguise myself from behind and that made a difference. And uh, taking a helmet on and off also had some effect. Do you know what? I've, I've, I, I, in 2018, in the summer of 2018, in June of 2018, I went on a long ride with a journalist colleague of mine called Lionel Burney. And mm-hmm. um, I attached, it was the summer of the, the football tournament and the foot, the, when we reached the Football World Cup, wasn't it? And England got all the way to the, the semi-final. And I attached a little England flag <clears throat> to the back of my bike. And um, for the first time, I was being given proper sort of like distance uh, to the side by what you might describe as white van man and even like little toots of encouragement and a, and a kind of wave of acknowledgement like that. So I think the single biggest thing that you could do is attach a little England flag and just have that on the back of your bike. I recommend it worked for me. Oh, yeah. Do you know, and what's really interesting with this stuff. So we did a follow-up for example, where we had various different outfits to see if that made any difference. And one of them mentioned the police on the back, and one of them was one of these jackets that says polite and looks like a police jacket but doesn't say police. Yeah, that's, um, they're and people, those, people, aren't they? They're a bit clever, yeah. I know. But the thing is, people treat them differently. So the fact that people can treat you differently depending on one letter of a word or whether you've got a little flag or not, it rather suggests that most drivers are quite capable of seeing us and making judgments. So when they're getting too close a lot of the time, it's not that they're not seeing us, it's a choice. Makes it totally different from, sorry, mate, I didn't see you, to, sorry, mate, I assessed what you looked like and made a decision accordingly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Although saying that, there are some police in the West Midlands doing some really great work around walking and cycling. One of the things they're doing is uh, targeting pedestrian crossings because they found that a lot of drivers aren't stopping. And what they do is they basically stand at the edge of the road by a pedestrian crossing in their full high-vis police jacket. And even then, some drivers just aren't seeing them until the last minute. And they, they literally couldn't be any more visible. Um, so it's astonishing. And, and although most drivers will see you, uh, see a person walking or cycling, there are some that just don't. So of course, we're here to talk about behaviour change, which is why we've got Dr Ian Walker with us. Um, obviously, people's behaviour has changed dramatically as a result of the um, coronavirus crisis. I just wonder how what psychology tells us about how habits form how we change them and why and what the current situation can tell us about that and what the future might look like in terms of how we get around day to day sure well i mean being a a tedious academic i'd probably better start by um defining what i mean by the word habit um because you know we can't do anything without defining terms first would you like a coffee well depends what you mean um So we tend to use it to mean a behavior that is triggered more or less automatically by the situation you find yourself in. So uh, if if you go through a conscious, deliberate thought process before you do something, that's that's not habitual. Um, But if certain external things kick off the behavior, so for example, the time of day, Uh, if that kicks off your behavior and you go in and do it without really thinking too much, then that's probably a habit. And we've all got examples of this. Um, I'm sure most of us fairly automatically 
clean our teeth at the same time of day every day without thinking about it too much. Um, it happens a lot in uh, diet that maybe we, without really thinking about it, we tend to eat the same foods. We don't think what we're going to eat. We just repeat our past patterns. Maybe we habitually wander into the kitchen and open the fridge and see what's in there. Uh, and it's definitely there in travel. So uh, I know I, uh, when I was still allowed to commute to work before the shutdown, uh, I pretty habitually chose my route to work to the extent that on a couple of occasions, when I knew in advance that the roads were going to be closed, I still started going my usual route because every morning, 7.30, I just automatically, habitually repeated my everyday routine of getting on the bike and heading to work down the same road. And it's only when I'd hit the roadblocks, I'd come to my conscious self again and go, oh, oh, of course, yeah. I, uh, I completely forgot the road was closed, even though they told me for the last two weeks. So habits are these automatically triggered, externally triggered uh, behaviors that we've built up by repeating our actions over and over in the past. So uh, confession time, I used to live in uh, Swansea in South Wales where I went to college and uh, at first I lived in this little town called Gowerton a couple of miles out of Swansea in the, through these country lanes and I used to drive every day and then after six months to a year I moved basically to the same road as the college campus and I looked on the map yesterday, it was 0.4 miles from my old house to the college and I used to drive, it was only when I uh, spent, I don't know, 10 minutes driving around the car park to find it full that I finally realised this was ridiculous. Um, but that's what I did without even thinking about it. I was only 18 years old, of course, so I wouldn't do that now. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah, everyone's going to be deleting the podcast now. <laughs> Ian, sorry, just to, to, to go back to this idea of habits and how, they, um, and how you've kind of defined what a habit mm. is. It does strike... It does strike us, I think, just watching on as this COVID fog descends on us all, um, that there is something going on in our in our habits, uh, in particular in relation to active travel, walking and cycling, isn't there? Um, I, I'm mm. seeing, particularly in the last 48 hours, really, I've seen a kind of welter of reports, some of which have been excellently penned by Laura Laker in well, The Guardian, no, I have no. to say. Um, um, and retweeted by Greta Thunberg, no less. But there's been, um, there's been a lot of evidence now that cities... Are changing their um, their the way they lay out uh, the road their roads in response to the COVID crisis. Um, you're reading the same thing. Have you got any thoughts about it? Yeah. So one of the things I should say is that research on habits shows that because they've become triggered by the environment, actions tend to get repeated until the environment gets shaken up somehow. And that's why this current period is so exciting and interesting and uh, unknown, because pretty much everybody on Earth has had their their environment, their routines, their, their daily patterns of life shaken up. Each of us has been forced, potentially for the first time in years, to really have a conscious think about what we do day to day. And we can't just repeat our daily routines. We can't just do what we normally do. Can't just pick up the car keys, get in the car and go to the office as normal. We're having to have a think. So it's affecting those of us as individual travellers. And it's also affecting the people who provide the streets and roads and infrastructure for us. 
they're having to go through a process of thinking afresh in a way that maybe they haven't for a long time. And we're starting to get these really interesting conversations happen about, well, hold on, we've spent the last 70 years uh, building cities to move cars as quickly as possible. Maybe this is time to reevaluate. And it's actually really quite exciting as an observer to see town planners who have maybe spent their whole careers obsessing about how to move motor vehicles as quickly as possible, suddenly re-evaluating what streets are for and asking themselves if maybe we could do things differently. And what, what are, Ian, what are the, the kind of drivers and the, the levers that change behaviour outside of a crisis? It's obviously easy to point out because we're, we're all in this environment at the moment, but in in the kind of fight there has been to get more people out of cars or changing their behavior in normal times what what has been those levers that's made that happen well i think what the research tells us is very fitting for the situation we find ourselves in um i really hate saying this as a psychologist because i really wish as a psychologist I could just say, oh, well, what you do is you do this and everybody's behavior changes. Uh, And it turns out it's a lot harder than that. Um, The thing I hate to admit is that the geographers are right. And what the geographers have been saying for a long time is that if you want to understand people's behavior, especially their travel behavior, you've got to look at the physical world around them. Uh, And I can give you one or two examples. There was a study uh, I read a few years back from America And they were looking at how can we predict who cycles to work? And they tried various things statistically. So they'd say, oh, well, you know, can we predict who are cyclists and who aren't cyclists from environmental concern? Can we predict it from uh, cycling attitudes? Can we predict it from all this sort of thing? And in the end, the best predictor of who cycles to work is the question, is there a cycle path? And the physical world is such an important determinant of what we do. It actually trumps, to a large extent, what we think and what we feel and what we believe. And like I say, as a psychologist, that's a hard thing to to acknowledge. But the physical world is the number one thing. So the way we build our streets, the way we police them, the way we uh, make certain modes of travel easy and certain modes of travel hard... That's the thing that's most important. But can I just jump in? So what really interests me about what you just say, Ian, is that um, in these very unusual times, this massive kind of global experiment that we're all mm. living, our, living our lives in at the moment, I've noticed, talking specifically about the physical world, obviously I live in, I live in South London, um, when I go out for my uh, statutory run, or even uh, down to the shops on my bike, I've noticed, uh, because the numbers of people out running in particular, um, I've noticed that new pathways are appearing absolutely everywhere, on Blackheath Common, on my local park, uh, on a little housing estate near Catford somewhere. There are People are finding and creating a path that wasn't there before. And as soon as it's become visible to the naked eye, it then attracts more and more people along it, and it's become a thing. So... People themselves are kind of informing what the next step should be, if you like. So it's not, you know, it's a kind of, um, and that's not normal, is it? Because there's an abnormal number of people taking these active travel or these active pursuits for the first time. 
What's really interesting with what you just said there is I, I immediately hear that as two phases. So this, I'll just do the second phase. The second phase is people copying each other, seeing the path and going, oh, that's obviously a place I can run. And that makes complete sense. There's so much research on what we call descriptive norms, which is basically this tendency to watch each other and work out what's normal from seeing what everybody else does. Uh, and it's an incredibly powerful influence. We did a study a few years ago where we, I, I've, I've got a really weird collection of data on how long people's showers are. <laughs> I probably have more data on showers than almost anybody else on the planet. And the reason we look <laughs> at showers is it's a really, really private activity. None of us know what is normal in the bathroom. And so we measure- say, I've got an outdoor what? shower. Ooh. So it's not especially private in my in my house. But anyway, carry on. Wow, okay. Well, I I'll just uh, take a moment <laughs> to picture that. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so so we don't know what's normal and it's really interesting that I've given public talks in the past and I've asked the audience, what do you think is the normal the average length of a shower in this country? And immediately, everybody looks really puzzled and then tells you how long their own showers are. So you'll have somebody goes, well, it, it, it's surely two minutes. And the person next to them looks astonished and goes, no, surely it's 25. And <laughs> people just don't know. And so what we did, we did this quite substantial experiment where we, we gave people feedback on how normal they were. Uh, so we we actually did it the hard way. So the easy way would have been to measure their showers and then just tell them, you know, you are longer than average, you are shorter than average. But being experimental psychologists, we did it with random numbers. So everybody got a random number. So, for example, we might monitor you for two weeks and then we'd give you feedback saying you are six minutes longer than average, for example. And But it was a random digit. And what we found was that pretty much everybody responded to become more average. So if we told you that you took longer showers than average, you started taking shorter showers. And if we told you you started, you, if we told you that you had shorter showers than average, you started taking longer in the shower. And in fact, as it happens, uh, those effects were not balanced. And uh, the people who were originally taking short showers started taking much longer showers once they felt it was okay. Once they felt that that's what everybody else was doing, they started spending loads longer in the showers and we actually wasted a load of water in the experiment. Um, but it's a nice demonstration of this drive to copy each other. Uh, and, as, and so in that very private setting, as soon as we told people what others were doing, they immediately started copying it. So... This drive to watch one another and be like everybody else is very, very powerful. So that's a really long-winded way of saying, I'm not surprised by the second thing you said, that once the paths appeared, everybody else started going on them because we look to one another to work out what is normal and proper. Uh, the bit that's more surprising is that some people uh, went across new paths in the first place. Uh, and that's harder to explain. Maybe there's a sense of all bets are off at the moment or something like that. I don't know. I'm surprised that, Ned, you have a shower outside. What's going on there? Yeah. Do, do you live well, in the Caribbean? Um, so, so, so here's the thing. I'm a freelance, uh, much like Laura, I'm a freelance journalist. I spend huge, in normal times, I spend huge amounts of time on my own at home. 
right? That was the theory. Unfortunately, there's a family of four here at the moment. And um, my, my, so uh, the, the outdoor shower is not visible from anybody of my, any of my neighbors' perspectives, but it is visible very clearly from the kitchen. <laughs> so um, it's, it's only to be used when I know I'm the only person in the house, right? Unfortunately, it, ha- it hasn't been touched for a month. So I'm mourning its, I'm, I'm mourning its lack of usage. So thinking about those norms that we have and how we travel and how um, the roads look like spaces for cars, you know, when you look outside your window, there's clearly a large amount of the road that's given over um, for motor traffic and also parking. And because we're designing for cars, that's what we get. And that defines our behaviour. That's how we get around. Like me, when I lived in Swansea and although I lived a very, very short distance from the college, you know, I, I guess I looked at the road as probably being a bit lazy. And that's what I did. You know, I got in my car and I drove. But now we have those um, quieter streets outside our homes. When we look outside the window, we might think, oh, well, the traffic's not roaring past anymore. Um, Maybe I could go out for uh, a ride. Maybe I can take the kids with me. Um, Maybe we're sort of starting to think about how we use that space differently. And obviously, there's a lot more people doing that. You see a a lot more people cycling. I saw a family the other day cycling through this, what's basically a main road through a park near me and I cycle up there regularly but I almost never see anyone who's not a young fit person on a bike and so to see um, two parents and two children out cycling on a um, I think it was Sunday afternoon uh, you know it was surprising to me and brilliant and I said hello to them as I went past Um, And I just think, you know, how can we help people like that to continue these behaviours once we go back to normal and inverted commas? I think you're absolutely right. And I think we've all seen just how many people are out walking, cycling, running, uh, many of whom are clearly doing it for the first time. And I think this tells us very, very powerfully um, that the... You know, the the feeling of our streets, the fast traffic, the incessant roar of cars has been a disincentive to people being out there. Everybody seems to be commenting on just how much nicer our streets feel at the moment. Um, The thing that worries me is that there'll be such a drive to get back to normal that we'll treat this as a holiday. We'll treat this as, you know, there was this period of disruption And the important thing is to get right back to where we were. And the question that we're all asking at the moment is, what can we do to fight that impulse? What can we do to make the public realise you could have these nice, safe-feeling, quiet streets without air pollution all the time if you wanted. We just need to start making some changes. And it's going back to what I said earlier about how it's the environment around us that shapes our behaviour more than what we think and believe. Uh, It feels like it's going to need to be fairly top-down. We're going to need government, local government, employers, and these bigger forces to help us bed in this new way of life if we want it to sustain. And as ever, it does appear as if um, we are playing catch up a little bit with our neighbours over the water. I mean, Laura, I'd be interested, I know, because as as I said before, you've been writing about this subject. It seems that um, Paris is putting something like 650 kilometres of widened pavements and extra temporary cycle lanes 
Um, and Berlin uh, has done the same. Milan, quite famously, as you. So it's happening all over Europe. And I can't see any evidence of it in the UK so far. It is a bit of a tricky one. Um, I, so I spoke to um, some people from Milan, obviously, for my article. Uh, the deputy mayors talked about what they're planning there, um, which is a bit of a network around the city, 35 kilometres. That's going to be cycleways, some widened pavements and some um, sort of um, pedestrian priority, low traffic neighbourhoods. Um And their thinking behind this is um, there's a couple of things. They're thinking that when things start to go back to normality, more to the point when restrictions start to be lifted, but people are still trying to socially isolate, um, people are obviously going to be wanting to avoid public transport. Um, Now, there's quite high levels of car ownership in Milan. um, So the inevitable uh, result of that would be a lot of people getting back into their cars, basically. Um, So you're quite right, Ned. Um, We're not really doing the kind of... um, Leadership. We're not seeing that kind of leadership in the UK that you're getting in cities like Milan. And, and interestingly, one of their reasons for doing this was to support kind of restaurants and um, local businesses and making street, uh, space on the street for business. Um, so there's also that argument as well as the health argument and the logistical argument. Um, so, yeah, in terms of the UK, without sort of getting into the nuts and bolts, um, Culturally and also in terms of legislation, um, we don't really have the kind of um, uh, the the same kind of approach um, that other countries do, and we don't really have the the history of doing these kind of um, temporary measures just yet uh, on a large scale. And um, there hasn't really been that kind of um, leadership necessarily that Ian was talking about. Um, so. A lot of local authorities, although they might want to do it, they're struggling a little bit and having to work things out for themselves. And I think people are starting to work it out um, how, you know, how you could temporarily alter streets um, for the emergency and then sort of thinking into the medium term as lockdown restrictions are lifted. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's, it, it has meant that we're sort of behind and on the back foot behind other countries. I think what we're seeing across other countries, like in New Zealand, where the central government, I think the New Zealand Prime Minister happens to also be a urban transport planner by uh, by um, skill set. And what we're seeing there is that they're almost saying from central government, we will pay for 90% of this temporary infrastructure and it's it's real leadership. And I, I'm... I'm I'm interested to get your thoughts, Ian, on this particular topic of behaviour change, because I I think behaviour change, we often think about, you know, customers, consumers, however you want to describe them, people in the street and their their change. But actually, it strikes me that being there needs to be a big behaviour change in the status quo of, of, of councils. Um, I wrote to um, Coventry City Council um, through the bicycle mayor work I, I did, um, and they, uh, you know, they came back and, and sort of politely said they didn't feel there was a need for it. And if there was, it would be too difficult for people who parked their cars. So, you know, already mm. way again, you know, way on the status quo and, and not deviating from that. How do you get behavior change from elected officials? And is it the same tactic? Well, there's a question. I mean, I think you're dead right that uh, not all behavior change is equal. You know, we let's say we want to get more people cycling. We could try and persuade each individual member of the public to cycle more, or we could persuade the prime minister it's a good idea. 
And I think I know which of those is going to have a bigger impact on the way we get around. Um, to the extent that the same methods work on, you know, a governmental or institutional decision maker, do you know, I don't know is the answer. I don't think that's really been explored terribly well. Um, all the work that gets done on how to uh, shape or influence people's behaviour uh, tends to be very much down to the individual level. And I think saying that out loud makes me realise that's quite interesting because it also fits a sort of a wider political issue, doesn't it? Which is um, there's been a real tendency within sort of neoliberal societies like ours to to try and claim that problems are a, a, a result of individual action or that if we want to solve problems, we should each individually take action to solve those problems, you know, recycling, energy use, all of these things. And as a lot of people have pointed out, um, that's, that's crazy. The idea we can mm. solve uh, the climate crisis by each of us just sorting some plastic boxes every week is ridiculous in the face of vast systemic problems such as subsidies to oil industries or you know the use of unnecessary packaging by vast international conglomerates um and it's been used as a, a lot of people argue as a kind of smokescreen um to drive all the attention onto the individual consumer away from the huge more corporate decision maker who actually has all the power uh so Again, that's a long way of saying, I really wish we knew the answer to your question uh -huh. of do the things we've done on consumers also work on institutional and governmental decision makers? Because if we had the answer to that, we might actually be able to make some real change. Mm. I kind of think that the 5P bag is a, a good um, example of what you've just said. If you ask people, you know, will you pay 5P for a bag, people go, yeah, sure. And then if it wasn't mandatory, people just wouldn't do it. You know, one or 2% of people would do it. But all of a sudden you make it law to charge 5p for a bag and we have this massive um, human scale shift, but it really comes from the policymakers as opposed to the individual decisions. It makes individuals potentially feel good, um, but it definitely needs that sort of top down, top down support, doesn't it? I mean, money, money works, doesn't it? Money, money changes behavior. Uh, that's, that's fairly self-evident. And uh, that's a very, very good tool as we've discovered, you know, when the chancellor stood up and shocked the nation by saying, we're going to pay everybody's wages in theory and made all these big pronouncements about grants and loans and this, uh, you know, historic borrowing and kind of tore up the capitalist model and, you know, talked about the big state coming to rescue everyone. If we can take a little bit of that forward post-COVID and say, if you ride your bike to work, not only are you going to be saving money that you would have been spending on public transport, but we're actually going to put another £10 in your pay packet every week and government will pay that. That might change a few minds. Money is possibly one of the most important tools we've got. I think it depends on the behaviour. So... Uh, there are definitely places where money seems to make a difference, but then you can immediately think of some exceptions to that. So we spent literally decades pushing up the price of cigarettes and it didn't really stop people smoking. In the end, we just had to ban it. Um, similarly, we don't really see levels of driving go up and down as petrol prices go up and down. Um, so there's something more than just economic signals with these kind of 
habitual, culturally ingrained practices, um, they, they seem to be quite resistant to financial incentives because they are so you know, tied in with our everyday existence. Uh, yes, indeed. Although it would be a, it would be a complete paradigm shift, wouldn't it? The notion that far from something being free or expensive to a lesser or greater extent and costing you money, it, you'd mm. actually be making money by making a choice. That's a different that's a different scale of incentive, I would suggest. So I was talking to someone from Brighton recently, uh, which is one of the few places in the UK that's managed to. Um, close off a street for walking and cycling during the COVID crisis to help people socially distance and get some exercise. And um, it's uh, down on the seafront road. Um, and they were telling me that usually it's just parking down there and it's £20 an hour to park, which obviously doesn't put people off because it's full a lot wow. of the time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that's much of a disincentive uh, in that case. Um, but I think part of the reason is that people just drive down there, um, get all their beach stuff out and then realise it's expensive and just think, well, we're here now. We may as well just use it. That's bonkers. Paying to park is one of the things that's absolutely fascinating. And I know we spoke about this when we met once before, Laura, um, that there's this expectation amongst the British public that you should be able to park your car for free in publicly owned space. And as we were talking about, uh, we wouldn't expect that in anything that's not cars. You know, basically, when we say we want to park for free, what we're saying is we want to store our personal property for free in public land. Uh, and we, if that was any other item, if it was like, you know, mm. I've got this sofa that needs a home, I'm just going to store it outside and, and the council had better look after it for me. Um, we'd all think that was preposterous. But as soon as you say it's a car... Quite a lot of that goes on in southeast London with sofas anyway. <laughs> well, it's, it's since the council got rid of all the benches, maybe it's like crowdsourcing. <laughs> am, I, am I right in thinking? Does anyone know the answer to this? I vaguely have some memory that um, in Japan, uh, if you want to buy a car or register a car, you have to prove that you can park it off street. Is that right? I believe so. And also we've got a parallel in this country that uh, quite a few years ago, I lived on a narrowboat for a while on the canal and you can't have one unless you either have a place to store it off the canal or promise never to park up and keep moving. Um, I, I remember the uh, the group in the US, I can't remember exactly where, um, but they they really kind of made a great point by putting some coins in the meter uh, in, a, in a local metered parking bay. Uh, and just rolled out some astroturf and some tables and some chairs, and just uh, took over that parking bay, um, and paid for that. Paid for that right, and people couldn't couldn't quite get their head around it. They wanted to be angry, but equally, as you say, in no other forms of society would you allow people to park their public property mm -hmm. for you know either free or subsidised cost. So when people overtook this, you know, took this over from a from a people point of view and said, "We're just going to have a picnic here for a couple of hours. We put five bucks in the meter. Leave us alone." People didn't know how to how to react mm, to that, which I thought was quite uh, quite funny. Ian, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, we've, we've moved on a little bit to cars and to to, to, to parking. Um, one of the real big reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is is hearing you speak at um, a talk. Uh, that I attended, which was um, entitled Are Cars the New Tobacco? Uh, and I guess it links to, um, to to the talk that the University of Westminster put on, which 
which you, you, you had some really interesting things that I wanted to explore about how we almost fetishize cars uh, and how we totally, um, you know, maybe even potentially addicted to them. And I guess that also links with what you said about uh, the cigarette warning labels and the, the gradual kind of um, demonizing of them. And if that is, you know, potentially one of the few ways we can uh, get people to use their cars less, a lot of people think it's about providing great alternatives. And I think that's, that's good. But, you know, if you compared that same logic with smoking, you'd say, well, to get people to stop smoking, <laughs> we just must invest more in vaping. Um, whereas actually what you want to do is people to stop that altogether. Um, so, so I just wondered what you thought and tell us a little bit about car fetishes. Um, it's something that interests me. That sounded weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got some bad mental images going on now. Um, no, the thing I was I was particularly referring to back then was uh, something that I find myself thinking about a lot, which is I'm just astonished at the way people consume and use cars. Um, and the thing that I keep going back to in my mind is what people are willing to pay. So you know, to try and put a little bit of research on this, I was involved in a couple of research projects which have asked people, uh, what, are you, what are you thinking about when you buy a new car? And the things that they say, uh, if you ask them consciously and out loud, is they tend to explain the whole thing as a very rational process. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm just interested in practicality and reliability. I need a car that does the job <laughs> and I need one that's reliable and I can trust it. And that's literally what they will say. Um, and you only have to look in any street to see that that's not true. Um, that, you know, if that were true, there would be zero Range Rover sales. The Range Rover and similar cars does not do the job more efficiently. It does not do it cheaply. Uh, people are very demonstrably willing to pay maybe 10 times more than necessary for a machine that does the same job. Uh, so the idea that this is rational or a practical solution to a, a problem is just clearly not true. And that's the kind of thing I was getting at. And, uh, you know, the thought experiment is, well, would you do this with a washing machine or a dishwasher? Would you pay 10 times more for your washing machine just because it's got a nice label? Um, could you, Do you even know who made your washing machine? Uh because that's where we should be with cars. If cars truly were domestic appliances, which is what they should be, we wouldn't really know who made them. We'd kind of pay the least possible as long as it does the job. Uh, and yet we very clearly don't have that same relationship with cars that we do with every other domestic appliance. And that's the thing I kept coming back to. Yeah, it's, it's really, that's a really, really interesting way of describing it, Ian, and you're absolutely spot on. I couldn't agree more. And there's, but there's this um, huge overcapacity in car design, isn't there? And I've never understood the logic of having cars that can drive at 120 miles an hour when you can't go over whatever you can't go over in this country. I don't know what the speed limit is, but um, you know, wh where's, the, where's the logic in that? I've never understood it. Well, if you speak to engineers and people who sell cars, they, they've got some stories they use to try and explain this. But ultimately, a big part of it is 
image. Uh, and that was really interesting. When we did some more work on people who'd recently bought new cars, we did this quite cunning thing of deliberately giving people really, really long interviews. So we had a, a great, um, a great uh, researcher who was working with us and we got people who'd recently bought a new car and she sat down and grilled them for maybe an hour and a half of, you know, talk me through what you were thinking when you bought this car. Why did you choose this? You know, anything else you can think of? Maybe, you know, is there anything else that you can think of? And what we found there was when people had the space to keep talking, different things eventually appeared. So the first things that everybody talked about was practicality and money and reliability and all this stuff that I've mentioned. And then if you could keep them talking for an hour, eventually they would get onto topics like image and the way it makes them feel. And, you know, I just like to be the sort of guy who drives a Jag. And this sort of stuff eventually came out, but it took an hour before it finally came out of people's mouths. And it really seems to show that on the one hand, maybe people feel a bit inhibited from saying they'd like to feel like Johnny's success. Uh, and maybe people just aren't fully aware of the extent to which they're driven by these motives when, th when they're choosing to buy cars. I think, so, sorry, can I just, wait one more point. I think that there, there does need amongst people of our ilk, you know, advocates for abandoning cars and choosing um, uh, clean alternatives at every possible opportunity. There does need to be some honesty in the discussion in public about um, our relationship with cars, because as much as we might like to demonize them, um, they are f astonishing things. I mean, every now and again, I'm forced to hire a car for various reasons, and I, I go off on a journey, and I, you know, I don't drive very often, but when I do, I, I do think every time I switch the engine on and kind of press the accelerator, and then sit on the motorway at 70 miles an hour, I do think that is an extraordinary thing that's happening here, um, and I think that people are quite bewitched by them, and I think that there there should be some acknowledgement in our debate that they that there, there is something. You know, there there is great uh, ingenuity, great va great great value to some extent in what they can offer, as well as uh, huge amounts of drawbacks. Otherwise, we're not going to take people with us. I d I completely agree, but just to push home my my direction of thinking here, is that not like saying, look, I got this new dishwasher. And they've invested billions in its development and it blasts every speck of dirt off the plates with a laser targeted by artificial intelligence. And you say, well, that's an amazing bit of engineering, but was that actually necessary to solve the practical problem that the thing was developed for? And you'd obviously say no. And so again, as soon yeah, as we yeah. as soon as we stop looking at cars, we realize what this actually means. I'm particularly interested in the UK uh, attitude to to cycling and whether, as a you know, my day job in marketing, whether we you know should go down a path of playing car companies at their own game, i.e., making bikes uh, like e-bikes look and feel, you know, somehow sexy and you know play that kind of um, the same aspirational game of you know empty city streets cruising through and and all the kind of weird stuff you get in car adverts or whether we should go down in what i'd call your you know washing machine approach where 
we we try and de you know make make the conversation less interesting and actually make it about the you know the thinking person's choice um because you know in society if you look at look around and look at kind of the commoditized society we have that doesn't seem like it so it's something that particularly works you know there i wanted to buy a bread knife the other day and there are like 90 different brands of bread knife uh, <laughs> and, and they are actually laser etched believe it or not um but but you know they had um there was this massive oodles of choice and and um i wonder whether you know I'm always tempted to say, well, the bike is just brilliant. It's just simple. It just works. Um, but whether we're actually we need to play car companies out their own game to get more people uh, on bikes. And I think that probably finally, to my point, links in with um, the attitude we have as a society to cycling in the UK. And and the more, you know, the more narrative there's about getting people wearing high vis and helmets and you know, armoring themselves up for battle to go out on their bikes links in with that trend of, you know, cyclists are probably, you know, male, they're probably 40 something or 50 something. Um, Ned, I liked it in your stage show, you used to call them Colin all the time. They were always called Colin. Um, and this, this kind of, uh, this kind of specificity that there is around what a cyclist is, uh, and whether that hinders our, you know, massively hinders our, 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 our fight to try and get more people on bikes. Well, I think the car industry has been very good at marketing, um, like Ian says, to the point of fetishizing. Um, you know, obviously they've got a lot of money, um, the car industry. I'm just wondering how much money and, and marketing you'd need to kind of counter those quite ingrained images we have of, um, of you know, the freedom that a car is supposedly gives you. Um, I know that the cycle industry doesn't have that kind of um, money and and neither do cities. And obviously, you have this common trope in some movies of the sort of loser on a bike. Uh, the successful person obviously drives the flashy car. Um, and the reality, of course, is very different. Cycling is obviously fun. It's healthy. gives you great legs. Um, driving can be hugely stressful in contrast. Um, it's not like the adverts at all. I wonder um, if there's definitely a role in promoting, you know, the alternative, but also if it just comes down to what we started off with, how we design our streets and sending a message to people that way and making cycling seem appealing by giving people space to ride bikes and making it look safe and fun. And um, and also looking to places like Milan, places around the world who are making these changes and, and looking at why and, and telling those stories instead. And I know that the, that the articles that have been coming out um, have, have had a lot of attention and uh, created quite a lot of excitement. Greta Thunberg uh, tweeted about my story about Milan. Um, and yeah, it really is sort of making people feel excited. And, and I wonder if that's the way to go. People who've been promoting alternatives to the car, people who've been promoting healthy, active travel or public transport, I think for a long time, we've fallen into a trap of trying to persuade people with rational arguments of, well, if you take into account the whole life cost, the bus is actually cheaper than having a car. And you know, if, if you can just factor in this 15 minutes of activity a day, then your risk of a heart attack diminishes by 1.2. Yeah. And this doesn't work clearly. Um, so I think there's, you know, it's very tempting. And I think it's something in what Adam says of let's, you know, sex up the alternatives. And, you know, there are, there are one or two very good examples of active travel adverts 
that just make active travel look like wow. You know, there was a great uh, Better by Bike campaign from Bristol a few years ago, which had some posters. And you look at these people on bikes and you think, that looks amazing. I want that. So we can go further in those directions. But at the same time, uh, we probably need to look at the car industry again. Because uh, again, another place where we have a weird cultural double standard is what we let car car marketing say. You know, if you look at the restrictions on other industries, if we look at the incredible restrictions on the alcohol industry and how they can advertise or the uh, gambling industry, or especially the tobacco industry, um, they're under incredible strictures about what they're allowed to say and what they're allowed to promise. They can't uh, in any way even hint that their products might be fun, uh, that they may make you popular or successful. And yet this is the, the central plank of a lot of motor advertising. And so maybe there needs to be a bit more uh, regulation of people who are promising uh, things that are actually problematic. Yeah, well, it's clear that we um, could probably go on about this uh, all day. It's a it's a real fascinating topic. Um, thank you uh, to Dr. Ian Walker. Thank you for joining us. Um, it's been it's been enlightening. I um, yeah, I, I, I love this stuff, and I hope that our, our listeners uh, do uh, as well. Um, we're going to bring on some more guests in the future. It's something that we want to do on the podcast. So if you have got any suggestions, um, let us know. Um, Ned, you'll be disappointed to know that uh, quite a few people left us feedback saying they would be interested in an episode on curb design. Um, no, far, from, so, far from disappointed, I'm actually uh, thrilled. Good. Um, and uh, I wanted to let you know that you've been listening to Streets Ahead. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Ian Walker, and thank you for listening. Let us know what you think. We're at Pod Streets Ahead on Twitter, or you can email us on hello at streetsaheadpod.com. Finally, wherever you're listening, please do rate and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Until next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.